We've been in Zechariah for several weeks now, and uh, those of you who've been with us know that we've been walking through what are called the night visions, a series of visions given to Zechariah, we believe over one night, uh, in which God was giving encouragements and exhortations to his people. Those of you who have struggled a little bit as we've gone through these night visions, because they are you know, they're, they're, they're prophetic, uh, and there's symbolism there, and sometimes they're a little hard to understand. You'll maybe be a little bit relieved this morning. We are finished with those night visions and get back to a little bit more of a narrative, uh, a narrative passage here. So uh, it probably will be a little bit easier to follow what's going on in the text. What we're going to be talking about this morning is worship. What is worship. What's the kind of worship that God desires from us and what he requires from us? The same thing. What he desires is what he requires and what he requires is what he desires. But as these visions have been given to the people, as there's been an encouragement to to build the temple and to see worship be restored in, uh, in Israel, not just in Jerusalem, but in the surrounding communities of Judah there's questions that are being asked. What, what do we do? How do we worship God rightly? And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So the title of the sermon is simply that, the worship that God desires and requires. What does it look like to worship God in a way that's pleasing to him? You know, when, when we look at scripture and we, we, we think about worship and what does scripture say to us about worship? How does it inform our worship? How does it define what worship is? There are really two categories that come up. Uh, the first category is that we see clear biblical instruction for what we would call corporate worship. That's what we're doing right now, right? So throughout the Old Testament, there was clear instructions about how God's people would, would do temple life, how that was structured. There was order to it. We see in the New Testament similar instructions for the church. We have an order. There's a, there's a typical sort of liturgy. It can vary from church to church, but we all tend to do similar things. Corporate worship is prescribed. It's informed by and in scripture. That's one category. Then there's this other category of worship that the Bible talks regularly about that has more to do with the ongoing lifestyle of the believer. So what does it look like for you to be a worshipful person, not just on a Sunday corporately, but Sunday, or excuse me, uh, Monday through Saturday, right? When we're, when we're not here, what does a worshipful life look like? And the Bible gives instructions about that too. So we think about all of these things together. What is, what is worship then? It's a really important question. If we're called to be worshipers, basically at all times, what does it look like to do that in a way that's pleasing to God? You know, sometimes the, the best way to answer a question is to ask another question. You notice that Jesus does that regularly. Why? Because it causes people to think for themselves. It might, it's the difference between maybe giving somebody just an answer when they ask a question and giving them an education, right? Helping them think it through for themselves. Responding with a question uh, by, by, by offering another question is often a helpful way to do that. We're going to see that happen in the text here today. There's a village not far from Jerusalem where all of the action in Zechariah has been happening so far called Bethel. Bethel's about somewhere between, say, 10 and 12 miles away from, from Jerusalem. And there's this delegation of men who come from Bethel 
down into Jerusalem here in chapter 7 and 8. They see that the temple is being built. They see all this activity going on in Jerusalem. And they bring a question with them about whether or not they should be continuing with a particular religious exercise that they've been doing for decades now. Look at chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll kind of pick up where they're at and see what they're asking. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regum Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, this question, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? All right, so what, what's going on here? There's a legitimate question that's being asked. We're given the date of this because we're, we're, we're led here to understand that this is about two years after the events of the previous chapter, these night visions. That's, it's been about two years since those came, and the people have been building the temple. They're two years into the project at this point, and there's about two years left to go, so they're about the halfway point. And you get these guys who come down from, from Bethel to ask this particular question about a fast. It says they're, that they're asking, should I abstain as I have been doing? They're talking about a particular fast that had been going on amongst the people for the last, you know, seven or eight decades. The fast that they're talking about were set up, in fact, to commemorate the events leading up to the tragedy of the Babylonian conquest of Judah. There are actually four different fasts that are mentioned here in chapters 7 and 8, and they represent four different events. The first one is the destruction of the temple. They fasted in remembrance of that day. There's another fast about uh, the destruction of the wall of Jerusalem when the wall was breached. They set up a fast to commemorate that. There's a third fast where they're commemorating and, and remembering the murder of the governor of Judah, a guy named Gedaliah. And then the fourth fast was set up that, that commemorates the actual beginning of the siege of Jerusalem as King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon actually takes over the city. So there were these four different fasts, and ever since those things happened, remember they were exiled for 70 years, they've been back for a few, so we're talking about several decades. Every year they commemorated these events by holding these fasts. So here's the logic, here's the question that's being asked. Since these fasts were instituted to remember these atrocities that led to the exile of our people, the Jewish people, in Babylon, and we, we did these fasts because we were petitioning God for help. It was a time of disaster, and this was a way for us to petition God for help. And now that here we're, we're back, and the temple's being rebuilt, in other words, it seems like that help from God has now arrived, should we continue on with these fasts? That's the question that they're asking. So it's a pretty simple question. You might expect a fairly simple answer here as they get to Jerusalem and they talk to the priests and Zechariah, but they don't get a very simple answer because, in fact, what they needed was not just a simple answer. They need a word from God about what's going on in their hearts. They need to be redirected about what constitutes true worship. And so God isn't interested in just giving them a quick answer. That would just be an informational answer, yes or no. God wants to give them an education. In fact, he wants to give them a heart check. Look at verse 4. 
It says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Zechariah is saying this, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Some translations, by the way, say, was it really for me that you fasted? That's the tone of the question. Was it really for me? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for it yourselves and drink for it yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? God is responding to their question with a question. And what he's saying to them is, what you were doing all these years in these fasts was not really for me. It was really for you. He's pointing out that what, you, what you've actually been doing this whole time is a, relig a religious exercise that was pretty empty. You've been practicing empty religion. Why is that the case? Well, there's a couple things worth noting here. The first one is that these fasts that they had been observing were never commanded by God. He never asked them to commemorate these events leading up to their captivity and exile. These were entirely instituted by men. And they were created, again, to acknowledge crummy circumstances and to try to get out of them by pleasing God. If God doesn't ask you to do something, but you're doing something, sort of a religious exercise because your circumstances stink and you're trying to, you're trying to get help, get out of them, there's a sense in which you're, you're sort of creating a transactional attitude. God, if we fast, if we do these exercises, will you then respond and get us out of our crummy circumstances? That seems to be what was going on here. Things weren't going their way. They believed that Look, if we can earn God's favor, great. And now they're coming and saying, I think we got that favor. We're back. The temple's being rebuilt. So now we can stop, right? In a nutshell, that's the nature of religion. It's transactional. Think about it again. Think about whether this attitude comes to you sometimes. I think it does because it comes to all of us. Something bad happens. And so we think, God must be angry with me. God must be upset or disappointed in me in some way. So let's do something to regain his favor again. And if we can prove to God that we're worthy, maybe he'll relent. Maybe good things will happen again. I want to ask you to just, just think about that attitude and, and really evaluate your heart on this. What is your motivation for doing religious activity? Why did you come to church today? This is a religious activity, right? Was there, was there a sense in your mind today or maybe any other day where, where you're, you're thinking, God is displeased with me. If I do this, I'll earn his favor, if I act this way, if I, if I do these rituals, if I, if I just pray this prayer or, or, or read these texts or something, God will, God will turn his heart of displeasure towards me into a heart of, uh, of acceptance. I think we can think of 
our religious exercises that way more often than we care to admit, right? And God wants them to understand that this is, this is what you've been doing. And he wants them to know that that doesn't please me. That's not the kind of, of worship that God is looking for. He's not pleased by it. He's not swayed by it. He sees it for what it is. At, it, at best, it's just outwardly pious, but void of any true heart obedience. And so he redirects them towards the kind of heart obedience that he has in mind. Verse 8, <clears throat> And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your hearts. But, he's talking about the people before the exile, he says, but they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. You see what the emphasis here from God is on what kind of worship really pleases him? He says, the fast that you've been doing, this transactional attitude, that's not where my heart's at. Here's where I'm at. Are you doing the things that my word actually commands you to do. It's evidenced by the way that you treat one another, the way that you uphold the law, the way that you uphold my goodness. Are you loving? Are you caring? Are you righteous? Are you fair? Are you compassionate? Are you merciful? That's what I'm interested in. And that's what went wrong with your forefathers, Israel, that's where the exile came from. They had forgotten that. In fact, they were hearing it, but they weren't hearing it. They had turned their hearts so diamond hard against it. They were dead set on doing anything but actually obeying the things that I had commanded them to do. Fasting, religious exercise, those things abounded. A heart of obedience towards me was really lacking. And that's why they ended up in the exile. If you're going to be transactional with God, you're going to find really quickly that God doesn't work that way, right? And so the transaction isn't going to go the way you hope it will. He's, just, he's not transactional. They hardened their hearts. They were failing to let the word do its work in leading them to obedience. Is that different for the people of Israel who lived under the law than it is for us today in Christ who live under grace? Not really. Think about James. This is New Testament. James 1.22, what does he say? Be doers of the word. Not hearers only. Because if you're a hearer only and not a doer, you're deceiving yourselves. It makes me wonder what was really going on in their worship service back in the Old Testament days of Israel. Like, 
Like, again, they were doing religious exercise. What was really going on? What was it like? How could God look at what they were doing and say, your hearts are, are just diamond hard towards me. You're not, you're not actually worshiping because you're, there's no heart of obedience behind the way that the word is forming you and changing you. What was it like? I wonder. And as I think about that, and I thought about it a lot this week, I began to think, what are we doing? In our own worship services, in the modern church era, what do we consider to be worship? What do we consider to be worship? How do we define that? If, if, if I was to ask you, like, <clears throat> you're gathering on Sunday morning, you guys worship, what, is, what did you do? What does that mean? What is, what is worship? I, I think that the most common response is probably something like this. When I'm worshiping God, I'm engaging somehow in some sort of like individual connection with him. We, th we often think about worship as this sort of religious exercise that brings me into sort of this like fill my tank God kind of moment, right? Maybe we sing songs and we think that's, that's what worship entails. It's this, it's this interpersonal, be me and God kind of only sort of foggy, ethereal moment. If, if I'm really worshiping well, it's just, it's just sort of God filling up my tank. And I, I think about that and I think, you know, there is a place for that, no doubt. When we read scripture, we read Psalms, for example, in particular, there is, there's, a, there's a lot there that lends to this idea of worship being sort of this, this moment between you and the Lord where there's uh, just sort of the spirit, you know, lifting you up and, and, and causing you to be ultimately thankful and focused on him and, and praise him. There's a place for that, no doubt. However, as I read through this text and I consider texts in the New Testament, it becomes abundantly clear that there's far more to worship than just that. In fact, when you look at Colossians chapter 3, we're told there to sing, and in singing we give thanks to God, but also it says that in our singing we're teaching one another. We're admonishing one another. It might be helpful to consider worship in this way. We worship God... We glorify God, in other words, by living in ways that, we ref that reflect what we were created for. To worship God is to live in ways that reflect what we were created for. I think that's what he's getting at here in Zechariah, and I want to flesh that out a little bit more. Go back to this ethereal idea of worship that I was just talking about, and I think that many of us would define worship in some kind of nebulous, ethereal way like that. Maybe we think about like passages in the scriptures that talk about the cherubim and the seraphim who are forever before the Lord and, and it's just you know, at all times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they do, right? That's, there, there's this, the, it, like we think if we could be worshiping God perfectly, that's what it would look like. But reckon this, that's what they were created to do. They were created to do that all the time. They're worshiping God because they're living according to the way he created them. They're glorifying him in that way. What were you created for? What was I created for? Looking through scripture, I get passages like this. Ephesians 2.10 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works. And therefore give glory to God. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul's about to say, this is what worship looks like for us believers. And he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And that's just some among other encouragements that are fleshed out in Romans chapter 12. What does James say? James chapter 1. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think what the Lord is trying to say to his people here in Zechariah 7 and 8, and what he would like to say to us today is this. When your worship, when your worship, whatever practices you do, if it's void of life-changing, others-loving obedience, it's incomplete worship at best. In fact, it's not really worship at all. It just brings about the judgment of God. Chapter 7 again, verse 13. He says, As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land that they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. God's saying again, their misguided understanding of worship, these empty religious practices, void of any change of heart that would cause them to be an obedient people who demonstrate their obedience in love. That's why they were exiled. That was the whole point. They needed to learn that lesson. 1 Samuel 15 The Lord said this to David. He said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. In other words, you you can do all all the religious exercises you want, but what the Lord is interested in is your heart of obedience. Behold, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. The prophet Amos, who was speaking to this group of people around the time of the exile, was speaking to them about God's disdain for their 
their, their pitiful, empty worship. And he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, you're doing the work, you're, you're doing the religious exercises. He says, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But, he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Again, your empty worship to me is, is, is disgusting in my ears, but when you live in a, accordance with the word, how it shapes you to be like me, that's what pleases me. Now you might say, okay, so if God is saying this is the worship he requires of us and desires from us is, is, is that we, 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 we live obediently, how is that not transactional? Didn't, didn't we just say God's not transactional? He responds to that potential question as he rolls into chapter 8. And here's the point. True worship is not transactional. It's a response to something that he will do, not something that we do to earn his favor. That's the difference between transactional religion and, and the grace of God. Transaction starts with, I'm going to start, God, by trying to turn your, 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 your unfavorable disposition towards me to turn it towards favor by something that I do. That's transactional. But God says, no, I've, I've actually done something first. What I want you to do is just respond to my grace. Chapter 8. The word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. He says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who were in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. 
And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. What's he saying to them? He's saying to them the same thing that God has always said to his people. As he, as he gives us his commands, as he gives us his law, as he calls us into a heart of obedience, he always, always, always starts with this. I have saved you. I have loved you. I will bless you. Therefore, therefore, because of my great love and work in your lives, therefore, come to me, follow me, obey me, live in light of my grace. You see the difference? He's not saying, do these things and then you'll get my favor. He's saying, you have been given my favor. Live like it. I've purchased you. I've bought you. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. Live like you're my people. That is worship. That is worship. And so he again encourages them to continue in this grace that he's given to them and says your obedience flows from, excuse me, flows from that grace. Verse 14 of chapter 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I propose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things you should do. And he repeats this same command of obedience. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true. Make for peace. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all of these things. I hate, declares the Lord. You've been given grace. You've been saved and redeemed by me. Therefore, again, live like my people. And he gives specific instructions to them. And it has to do with how they love one another and treat one another. How they're hearing the word and it's shaping them to act like the Lord. You've been given grace, be givers of grace. You've been given love, be givers of love. That's worship that's pleasing to me. Grace overflows in love. We look at the, the worship of the New Testament church. At its best, and by the way, there's plenty of examples in the New Testament of worship in the New Testament church that was not at its best. We just went through 1 Corinthians, and that was pretty much not its best, right? But when we look at it at its best, and I'm thinking about passages like in Acts chapter 2, all right, or in Acts chapter 4, where you see, you see the church really responding rightly to the grace of God that they've been given in the gospel, what do you see them doing? They're devoted to the teaching of the word. They're devoted to prayer, right? And that's shaping them to be devoted to loving one another really well. 
to bearing one another's burdens, to meeting one another's needs, their spiritual needs, their material needs, their emotional needs. They're worshiping God. They're praising God together, it says, and all of these things are taking place. They're thankful to him for the grace they've received, and they're sharing it with one another. And that pattern of early church worship is given to us as the pattern for God's design for worship in the church. This is what he desires from us. So what about us? I want to just encourage us as we think about worship, as we think about coming back together as a church again after a long year where where much of our worship has been disrupted, certainly our corporate worship has been greatly disrupted. What What is it that God wants from us as we regather together as his people? He wants us to be hearers of the word who are doers of the word. Our corporate worship is really important because it's here in this context that we get to hear the word together, that we get to remind each other of its truths, that we get to be shaped by it as God speaks to us and and he tells us, this is who I am. This is what I desire of my people. This is what I've done for you in my son. You are people of grace. We get to hear that every week when we come together. And that's foundational. Because it's not supposed to stop when you walk out those doors. It's supposed to lead you then to a week filled with doing the things that the word has formed you to do. Your worship of God doesn't end at noon on Sunday. Your worship gets anchored between 1030 and noon on a Sunday. And then it's fleshed out the rest of the week as you are people of the word who bring glory to God by doing the things that you were made to do. And that's manifested in good works of love towards one another. How do we we excel in this way as a church? Well, two basic things, and I'm not saying anything new. I'm just basically repeating what I've said. We, We have to be really good reminders of the grace that we've been given in Christ. We've got to be so focused on the grace of God that we've received in Christ that it just permeates the way we think about everything. That we're thankful people regularly. That we are people who who know that God has saved us and redeemed us in his son. Like we got to just, that's just got to ooze out of our pores. And again, we we can build that up as we focus on his grace as we gather corporately together but then we really need to be intentional there's there's language here in these texts and throughout the old testament that really speaks to caring for not just each other generally but specifically the marginalized among you right the 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 widow the orphan the poor the needy what does that look like for us to to flesh that out well frankly Take it at face value and have a a particular heart of service towards the marginalized among you, among us. But but also read it broadly. I mean, we're we're not always going to be, you know, in immediate contact with widows or orphans, or at least the way that that they were represented here in ancient Israel. 
But what that represented in ancient Israel, again, were people who had severe need and really needed help. And we're always surrounded by severe need and a need for help in the congregation. There are spiritual needs. There are emotional needs. There are material needs always. And how will you meet those needs if you don't love one another well enough to know that they exist? So my encouragement to us, I think this is God's, God's encouragement to us, as we, even as we consider the worship of the New Testament church. Are we loving one another out of an overflow of the grace and love that God has given to us enough in such a way that it's pressing us to actually know one another's needs and therefore meet one another's needs? Are we invested in each other Monday through Saturday as much as we are on a Sunday morning? That's, according to Romans 12, your spiritual service of worship. It's a good reminder for us as we get back to quote-unquote normal life in the church. We, we, we need a new normal. We need a better normal. And I, and I do think that as a church, this pandemic year has seen lots of opportunities for that kind of worship to be exhibited. Don't get me wrong. It's been wonderful to see us care well for one another. But as we're able to regather more fully as the body, that should increase as we have more opportunity to serve one another with the overflow of grace that we've been given. So I encourage us, even this summer, to pursue it. The Lord would say, that's how we worship him rightly. You might remember there was a question that started off this whole thing back in chapter 7. They had a question about the fast. Are we supposed to continue this or not? You might think that God or Zechariah had forgotten about the question, but they don't. In fact, there's an answer that comes here at the end of chapter 8, verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth. So all, all these fasts that you've been doing shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. In other words, they've been fasts of mourning. They've been fasts of supplication. What he's saying here is, I'm going to turn your fasts into feasts. You have been given grace. You have been saved. You have been redeemed. These fasts, they'll become feasts. And then he says again, therefore, love, truth, and peace. God will turn our fasting into feasting. When does he do that? This whole text looks forward to the day when the Messiah arrives. God will turn our fasting into feasting when Jesus comes. And of course, Jesus did come. And there was a question about fasting that was brought up to Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. It says, The disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we fast and why do the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. And Jesus said, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What he's saying here was he wasn't opposed to fasting. He fasted. He expected that his disciples would fast, but not while he was with them. Not while he was with them. The, the, the fasting is turned into feasting with the arrival of Christ. He came and his disciples rejoiced and they feasted. And then he left. He said he would come back someday. And that's the day in which you and I live. We're in this in-between, right? So do we fast? Sure. There's no stipulations on that in Scripture. It's entirely voluntary, but we fast. When we fast, it can be a very legitimate expression of dependence upon Him, upon waiting for Him, upon recognizing that when He comes again, there will be feasting, and we long for that day. And we can express that in fasting and, and, and crying out, Lord, how long? But fasting in and of itself is only for that purpose. It's, it points forward to a feast, a rejoicing of knowing that all of these blessings that God has promised arrive to us in Jesus. This is our reality. And in the meantime... We have this feast that Jesus gave to us to point us forward to that great day. And so I want to point your attention to some communion cups that you'll probably find either before you or behind you. Jesus left us with a feast to remember his arrival, his death, and he left us with this feast to observe together until he returns. Be reminded of what this represents. This represents the feast of knowing that Christ has come, that he's died for us, that he has blessed us with his grace, and he says again, I'm coming again, do this until I return. So if you're a believer in Christ, pick up this cup and let's feast together. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace shown towards us. We think about what, what, what's being said here in Zechariah, this Old Testament people, Lord, that, that were so hard-hearted. They had so turned away from you, Lord. And yet, in your mercy... You called them back to yourself. You promised them blessing, inheritance that would last forever. This beautiful picture of peace where old people and young people alike will be playing in the streets together. Lord, a, 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 just a great picture of the joy of salvation. And Lord, you've told us that for us to respond to that, in worship is to, is to be thankful in ways that, that live out obediently what you've created us and called us to be. So I pray, Lord, that you'd help us as a, as a people to recognize, Lord, that we too are, are sinful people, 
hard-hearted people. But God, being rich in mercy, you have changed everything. You've blessed us beyond measure. You sent your son to die the death we deserved so that you might forgive us and lavish us with your grace. We are a people with an incredible future. So Lord, help us to to be so filled with that joyful hope, so filled with your grace that we spill out as people who worship regularly by reflecting you, by loving like you love, by forgiving like you forgive, by caring like you care, by shouldering each other's burdens the way you've shouldered ours. Help us, Lord, to know that this is the heart of worship that you desire. Keep us from empty religious exercise. Keep us from from the faulty idea that we could ever earn your favor because you're just mad at us all the time. Lord, you are so gracious. Help us to respond to your grace as joyfully obedient people. And now as we sing, I pray that we would proclaim those truths to one another, that you'd fill our hearts, Lord, and that you'd send us out from this place to worship you Monday through Saturday as we worship you even now. You're so good to us, Lord. Thank you for turning our fasting into feasting in Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen.